Hello all, this can be Corporal Willy. And I don't mean Willy as in like a totio. I mean like Willy, like G.I. Willy. And I'm coming through to you from G.I. Joe Berg. And we're going to be talking about small plastic action figures that can do very dangerous things with their small weapons. They can also be riding vehicles such as Sky Strikers and other such fantastic planes that have been made to bomb things. Otherwise, I'm going to leave it to the crew. Okay, crew, take it away. Hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 12 of G.I. Joburg, the Nets only podcast broadcasting from Johannesburg and Cape Town, South Africa, about the wonderful world of G.I. Joe, vintage and otherwise. I'm joined this evening by Rob and Paul, and my name is Stephen. And we've had some interesting news this last week. Why don't you tell us about that, Rob? We were on an episode of What's Up, Joe Mind, and it was a really cool experience just getting to talk to these awesome guys. Yeah, they're probably one of the biggest Joe podcasts out there right now, isn't that right, Steve? Absolutely, I'd say so. We were in the mix with other guests, uh, Mike Heddle from the Canadian Joe Con, and Wayne and Tuck, who are responsible for the Hero Project, which is on Kickstarter. They brought to you Sigma 6, and they now are designing a similar 8-inch line of Mythical Heroes, which we can all pitch in and become uh, part of the action by sponsoring them. So check them out, the Hero Project on Kickstarter. The guys are really cool. It was really great to actually get to sort of meet Justin, so to speak, because I'm, I'm a fan of his website. And it was just cool to get some insight on the creation of the Sigma 6 line, seeing it through the eyes of a toy maker, so to speak. And that was, that was pretty cool, especially seeing as we got to, you know, meet them one on one. I'm very happy to say that there's somebody else out there who's just as excited as I am about a snow job sideshow, Joe. <laughs> so, dull. Yeah, dull. But <laughs> <laughs> we had a good time. I mean, when I got into work eventually, I was asked how it went and stuff. And I was like, yeah, no, it was pretty cool. And it felt like being on MTV, but for like action figures. <laughs> I think that's quite true. It was just fun to connect with like American collectors and just hear their side of you know what what it's what it was like for them to collect. Yeah, it's good to know that our experiences are kind of similar in a way. If you take the time to listen to some of the earlier podcasts about say the retaliation shows, you will hear some of the dissatisfaction. But it was also cool to hear how they could relate to us on the dissatisfaction and. Yeah, we're all collectors and we, and we love the toys and I think that's something that's universal that bridges continents and great expanses of water it's incredible like you were saying how four inches of plastic can bring people closer together <laughs> hmm. in a non-sexual way yeah sometimes I'd... 12 inches of plastic hey Paul Woo. damn right well dressed and ready for action <laughs> or undressed isn't that why you like your 12 inches so much I've only ever seen one of them naked, and that's Beachhead because he had a cracked chest. Lies. I know that you've undressed Stalker on several occasions. Oh, yeah, but that's change it to the jersey mode, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's your excuse, right? (laughs) Because, you know, I like me some Stalker action. (laughs) (laughs) Although, uh, let it go on record, I will post pics of the Baroness when she eventually arrives. And she also has removable clothes, and yeah, we'll make it kind of funny. Just while we're on the topic of 12-inch figures, Hot Toys has done a 1 to 6 scale tumbler from Batman. Ooh, wow. Holy shit. You can put the figures in it. That's probably the size of the table that we're currently seated at. 
Although, can the bat pod come out of it, though? Oh, please. No, it doesn't have that, but it does have the moving tail stabilizers, and the cockpit opens, and it's got a whole bunch of other little moving features. It's got quite a bit of metal on it, from what I can tell. Well, at that scale, and at that, I'm sure, expected cost... Price. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they can cram as much bells and whistles as possible. Okay, I made two really cool sightings this past week. I went to go and check out that comic shop, by the way, to go and check out if they still have some of the Brave Star figures and whatnot. Cosmic Comics. That's right. In the Heathway Center. I went to go and have a look. Um, They are all but full out of Brave Star stuff. They have actually only got retro He-Man and retro Thundercats stuff lying around still. And they also have the new totals, which were quite a treat to see. Yeah, they're quite big figures, actually, and very well articulated, I must add. Kind of like a Turtles nod to the 25th anniversary line, kind of like how the Joes have done it. Really, really exciting to see. I'm hopefully getting mine in August. Pretty excited about that. And the other sighting I made was a True Heroes rescue helicopter at the Toys R Us in Heathway. It's very much like the Black Hawk. It's, it is a Black Hawk. It's the same sculpt as the PTE. But the difference is it's got a little sliding door where the carpet is. You know, with the, the PTE one, uh, just to paint a picture for you guys, you only got the sliding door for the, the main crew compartment, but there's two seats that are sort of hidden. They bridge the gap between the crew compartment and the cockpit. Now they have a little sliding door and a mechanism a thing so you can hang a stretcher and stuff on it as well. Yeah, I think I saw that the other day at Toys R Us. My criticism with that, while I do like the added uh, access to the seats... The quality of the figures lead me to question the quality of the helicopter itself. With Power Team Elite, those figures aren't Joes, but they have good articulation. Their proportions are all right. Their accessories are spot on. Well, a little bit wonky on the gun side of things, but a little bit of heating and bending goes a long way. But those figures that come with True Heroes are garbage. Yeah, they're repaints of the same figures I got with my F-22. Yes, not great figures at all. So if that speaks to the quality of the vehicle, then one should avoid it. But that said, the F-22 from True Heroes is a gem. Yeah. It's a beautiful vehicle. So yeah, the figure shouldn't put you off getting one of those. And at the price point uh, for South Africans, 250 bucks. it's not too bad, actually. It's a well-sized vehicle. Listen, if I can recommend, get the PTE Blackhawk anyway. It's more military. But, I mean, if you ever wanted to give Lifeline his signature vehicle, there it is. It's even done up in his color scheme. Damn right. Well, that segues quite nicely into the main component of this evening's episode. The three of us are going to basically debate our three ultimate picks in G.I. Joe or Cobra Air Power. We're going to do things slightly differently this evening because instead of each of us listing our favorites... We're each going to isolate one particular favorite and try and convince you, the listener, why our favorite is better than the other guy's favorite. And we've restricted it to jets, haven't we? Absolutely, yes. Because, I mean, I think the obvious winner is the Tomahawk. That debate would be pretty moot. Yeah, we'd all be just going, hey, it's so cool. I think we did that in the last episode, actually. We all just sort of settled on the Tomahawk as our ultimate air vehicle. But now we've restricted ourselves to 
the fast movers, the Joe line. And to my mind, they were always premier pieces. They always carried a bit more majesty than a tank or a jeep. They came in bigger boxes and had a little bit more engineering panache invested in them. I have to agree with you there. Also, the jets in the Joe line seem to fit with the scale better. Uh, I'd say a Sky Striker is closer to being in scale than, say, the Tomahawk is, for example. But, yeah, the jets have that majesty that you speak of in the sense that, you know, they're big, big toys. And if you had to open them on Christmas Day or for a birthday present, you would feel quite um, pleased (laughs) with your parents, I think. (laughs) Agreed. So, the best way to kick this off, I'd say, is to do things chronologically. Whose pick appeared first in the G.I. Joe line? And that would be mine, because I went with Crowd Pleaser, the 1983 Sky Striker XP-14F. Why did I pick the Sky Striker, you might ask? I mean, it is, of course, not perhaps the most recent entry to the Joe line, it being the first G.I. Joe jet, but that's probably the primary motivation for me picking it. It has a legendary allure, and... As an air superiority fighter, I can't fault it. It has the best mix of weaponry. It has a tandem cockpit. And as a toy, the Sky Striker has a level of interactivity that no other G.I. Joe or Cobra jet has. Once you have a few Sky Strikers parked on the deck of a USS flag, you rarely realize this quite apparently. The fact that it can be towed by the little deck tow vehicle, the fact that it can snag the arrestor cable, just makes me think that it had a certain enduring quality that nothing else could really touch. Sure, there were the jets, but the Sky Striker will always be the premier G.I. Joe item. And it is a pretty potent fighter on its own merit. And we'll get into that pretty soon. Let's move on to our second entry in this debate. Paul, I believe you have the next one. In 1986, Hasbro decided to unleash one of the coolest vehicles upon us as Joe fans. The vehicle that I'm talking about is, of course, the Night Raven S3P. The Night Raven is tantamount to walking in a dark room, wearing a blindfold, and getting smashed in the face with a mallet. To me, it stands out as one of the most beautiful jets in the line. It's also one of my favorite aircraft across all science fiction and fantasy lines. It is a big jet. I think the experience that I had when I first received mine is quite special and as such I'm putting it on my pedestal for tonight's riveting debate. Cool. Rob, what you got for us? I chose the Hurricane VTOL, or the VTOL, uh, which is made in 1990 and it is a Cobra vehicle. What I like about it is it just seems to combine the, the best of sort of real world aerodynamics and just plays with it. It just makes it this awesome sci-fi little vehicle that is able to take off and land wherever you put it and it has this very unique pilot which I think you won't find another pilot like them in the rest of the line. The color scheme is very unique as well and I like that it's it's very well equipped. It's, it's ready to take out other things in the air and I think it is definitely very much superior to everything else mentioned tonight. Alright, well, let's heat things up. Why is it superior, Rob? There are many reasons. Probably my favorite reason is that it, it's small. It's smaller than the other two, which means you can actually play with it properly. As <laughs> I think I mentioned in a previous podcast, playing with jets as toys is kind of 
ludicrous and problematic because you cannot match the speed of the jet as it actually would fly. Well, it Even depends on how quickly you can uh, sprint, I guess. Yeah, but like, <laughs> is that really fun though to run around and go, oh, I'm flying so high. <laughs> No, the cool thing about the the Hurricane is it's small. You can play with it a lot easier. Just the size of it just makes it more playable and more fun. And I think it feels more sturdy than possibly the Sky Striker or the Night Raven. I mean, Night Raven looks very long. I feel like if you were to drop it, it would probably break quite easily. I think Steven's had issues with the um, landing gear before. Well, that's why I didn't pick the Night Raven. And this is a point that I want to make. The Sky Striker is an extremely durable toy. I remember very distinctly, Rob and I, well, I received a Night Raven at the same time that he received a Sky Striker. And this is our first blushings with the Sky Striker. I remember we were outside late at night, flying these things around under the moonlight, as one does. Yeah, so we weren't embarrassed by people coming past. Yes, it was completely deserted street. But anyway, I sort of let down the landing gear and sort of came in for a, a faux landing on the asphalt. Rob let down his Sky Strikers landing gear and actually had this thing bumping along rough street asphalt. No problem. And it just astounded me. I was cringing at the time. I mean, of course, he was doing this with a 30-year-old toy, but like, no problem. But therein lies the key ingredient to the Sky Striker. It is... So vintage, yet so durable. It has rubber tires, which have little brass rivets, which make for very smooth rolling wheels that have zero problem negotiating even rough terrain, which a jet, in reality, wouldn't have to do because you'd be landing on very smooth runways. But this Sky Striker has stood the test of time, and I, I believe that all of the vintage ones were made to this specification and are pretty tough little bastards. The Night Raven, however... Can I say? Can I say? Oh, you may, sir. The Night Raven's landing gear is tantamount to going to a strip club and then realizing that all the strippers are transvestites. Now, I don't personally have any like affection for, tra- for transvestites, but you know, you can see where I'm getting at. As soon as you're about to hit the runway, the landing gear just folds right in. And it is a bit of a problem. I actually sometimes have problems displaying it on my shelf. I have to actually put wheel blocks on it in case gravity decides that it wants the belly of the the Night Raven to touch the shelf as opposed to just the wheels. So on that point, I can agree with you. So you concede that in terms of landing gear, the Sky Strike is far and away superior to the other two jets under consideration. Under consideration, yes. Well, we're conceding that the Sky Striker's landing gear is better than the Night Ravens. I think the type of landing gear that the Hurricane has is sufficient for what it needs. It's, it's not Hurricane exactly... The does not have landing gear. It has little yellow rollers. Yeah, but I, what I think is that it's designed as a VTOL vehicle. It doesn't need to be able to roll around. All it needs is to be able to land very comfortably on these... And taxi a bit to get us to the hangar. It can't taxi. It has no propulsion. It can can totally do that. It has no propulsion when it's parked (laughs) because its engines face downwards. What, you tell me that there's a little electric motor that, like, power these tiny little yellow rollers? There's nothing that says it doesn't. And also it can be towed around as well, if necessary. And I think that that's that's a basic practice in most airfields. Especially for larger aircraft? Well, you'd need it to have support vehicle then to assist it. Whereas the Sky Striker can very amicably operate under its own power on a field, taxiing. 
No problem. Despite the fact that the useless flag comes equipped with a vehicle that helps to move it around. Well, that kind of just... suggests, in a way, that actually it can't move around on its own, as effectively as other craft can. The only reason it has a deck vehicle to tow it on the flag is so you don't have to light up your engines every time you want to move the damn thing. It's a common practice on, on aircraft carriers, I imagine. It's a safety practice, actually. Absolutely. Mm. Whereas if you're on an open field, you can light up your engines and, and maneuver. One of the drawbacks to the VTOL, the Harrier's actual propulsion system, uh, as you know, it's kind of it's a hybrid. So it's got a VTOL capability, but it also it's a full-on jet when or when the vernier pulls in. But now, the thing is, those vernier actually move. They allow a Harrier to actually position itself, and then obviously it can just use its a very low rear thrust to taxi itself off an, an airfield or off a, a runway. And that is one advantage that a real-world aircraft has over the VTOL. And to me, that's a bit of a downside because with fantasy aircraft, you kind of want them to be a little better than the real thing. You know, I saw in a issue of the comic book where Cobra Commander launches a, a full-scale attack on Destro's Scottish castle, they cut to Zartan and Billy escaping Cobra Island in a Cobra Hurricane VTOL. And they show a few of them parked at the Cobra Island Air Force Base. It depicts the aircraft with retractable landing gear while the wing is still in its horizontal flight position. So So then it could be the same problem that the Sky Striker has. With that mechanism that allows the wings to move. Yeah, it's a, it's a. You can't fly it with this wings out. out. Yes, you okay. can't fly it with the wings out. So, yeah, thank you for solving that little problem for me, Steve. Hey so, man, what are friends for? The bottom line is, I think in terms of landing gear in its real world incarnation, and once again in the practical toy sense, the Sky Striker has to come out on top because, as I say, rubber with the brass rivets. And the fact that it can take a beating. Yeah, the Night Raven really isn't a contender in that category, and neither is the Hurricane. Those little rollers can't negotiate a bumpy landing terrain. In terms of landing gear, Sky Striker gets a point. Thank you. Seems Let's move on to armament. Ah. <laughs> Herein lies some contention, because it seems that Cobra's priority with its jets are for close-range, smaller missiles. Mm-hmm. Would you both agree on that score? I would, but it depends, because I think the whole thing with the Night Raven is that with any stealth fighter, they generally have a, a launch bay, and the launch bay is modular to a point when it comes to armaments, and very much like any um, hard point on, on any plane is, actually, to keep different sort of armament. In the case of the Night Raven as it stands out of the box, I've always imagined the, the two missiles that come out of the bay, I've always imagined those to be the, the serious payload, whereas the sort of rear-firing other ones are more of a defensive option. So I would say the hard points on the wings for the Night Raven, I'd say, are the short range, and I'd say what's stored in, inside it is actually... The, the serious fire and forget, blow up stuff for real kind of you know, missiles. I'm not sure that the double toxin missiles that are located in those wing pods are meant mm-hmm. to be stored firing backwards. I think you insert them forwards and the pod drops off and then the missiles drop out and they fire. It's sort of a, a baffle almost. I've, I've actually I did some, look, uh, some research on it where I could. Obviously, with, with the original Blackbird, SR-71, it never carried hard points on its wings. It was always it always kept stuff in its bay. Um, well, it was unarmed, wasn't it? 
It was unarmed, but that was for the purpose of maintaining its um, stealth capabilities and also, you know, to reduce drag on the actual jet itself so that it can actually get to the speeds it needs to. But with a lot of the research on the G.I. Joe side, and I've been looking at stuff like the Impel card, and the Impel card actually mentions fully armed one-man piggyback flight pod, four radar-guided air-to-air missiles, rear gun station with twin barrel and direct feed automatic machine gun. And then on a Night Raven brochure... They said the ordinance is an internal rotary launcher which can hold up to eight short-range air-to-air missiles, which I don't understand because that's now dismissing the hard points on the wings. And then in the actual blueprints, all they refer to are the double toxin heat-seeking twin missile pods. They don't refer to how they should be configured, but there was something about them being reversed to maintain their aerodynamics. I agree with Steve on keeping them facing forward within the wingtips, like in the hot, in the hard point itself, so that yeah they do drop out because that would make a lot of sense because the F-22s of today do the same thing. They open their base, they drop the missile out, and then only does the the missile only ignites after being dropped. I think it's a meter and a half before it goes off. Also, once again, to um, help disguise the plane's signature. So in short, with eight short-range missiles contained in a rotary internal bay, plus four additional missiles on the wings, you're looking at a payload of 12 air-to-air missiles for close-in engagements. Yeah, I would imagine that it can be slightly modified. It can be a recon unit with a high defensive capability, or it can be configured to be a bomber. That's how I choose to see it. And I imagine that even like in the real world, certain serial numbers of the planes would keep certain ordnance for certain missions, you know, because maybe the pilot in that is specialist ground attack. Him being in the plane makes it more effective. I think I'd add interceptor craft to its main occupations. Oh, yeah. Because the, the amount of speed that that thing has, I mean, I'll just come out and say it right now. Out of the three planes under consideration, the fastest by a wide margin is the Night Raven. Yeah, yeah so the Raven is the fastest. You win on that score. So it is designed <laughs> to get in, launch a flurry of missiles at other airborne targets, and then get the hell out. That's right. Because it would not last long in a stand-up dogfight. Mm-mm. It can't turn as tight as a Sky Striker, or a Hurricane for that matter, and it doesn't have very good pilot visibility. If you look at the canopy, it's designed for speed and structural strength and very poor forward and peripheral visibility because he's got that enormous uh, strut right in his face. That's correct. I would imagine if you are piloting a Night Raven with any kind of uh, air-to-air combat scenario, if you are the pilot of the Raven and you see your enemy first, which is quite likely the case because you're a stealth fighter, you can engage your enemy and maybe you can get a, you can padlock your enemy and you can take them out and that's great. And there you have the advantage and you can get out of the, the AO very, very quickly. If, however, you are surprise attacked, the only advantage the Night Raven has is its speed. It, the, the fact that it can push itself to Mach 3.5 and get itself out of the AO very, very quickly and limits pursuit is definitely an asset to it. I would say a pilot would have to be really, really stupid and really be, uh, and really pressing his luck if he had to turn and burn and then come back and then still engage an enemy fighter after it has been a surprise attack. I imagine Strata Vipers do think themselves quite highly. They might just want to loiter and, and prove exactly how tough their metal is. And if we had to, you know, 
switch scenarios around. For example, if we had to have the Sky Striker as the main Cobra jet, and we had to have the Night Raven as the main Joe bird, what would end up happening is you'd find that there would be a lot more discipline in the use of the Night Ravens versus the Cobra side of it. Cobra, unfortunately, tends to breed arrogance. Arrogance is not something you want when you're up in the air. (laughs) Well, don't overlook the fact that Ace is just as cocky. Yeah, but Ace is cocky for a reason, (laughs) because Ace does have the discipline. He still has the discipline of a of a seasoned pilot. He's somebody who will, like any pilot, you have to rely on what you're flying. Um, you have to know its limitations, and, and Ace is somebody who would do that. I think a Stratoviper would think very highly of themselves. They would think that they're pushing the bar, but they'd actually push themselves to oblivion. I guess by being a member of a terrorist, well, a group known throughout the world as a terrorist organization, and, and knowing that, and, and still... Doing what you do kind of attracts the most unscrupulous individuals, whereas Ace made his way to the top through a rigid national military structure. So, yeah, okay. Thank you. I'll take that as a point in my favor then, unless Rob has something to say about Vapor. No, the interesting thing I find about Ace, though, is that he's a good pilot, but he never seemed to have stuck around for any of his aircraft for very long. (laughs) He doesn't seem to have specialized in anything. Because, like, you come out with an 83 Sky Striker. And then in 93, there's the Ghost Striker X-16. And then in 2004, the Tiger Hawk. They all have Ace as the pilot. Okay, maybe they'll go towards him being a multi-purpose pilot who's able to fly lots of different things. But kind of suggests that his ability to push an individual aircraft to its limits and to find what you can do best with it is, is very limited which is why the way that the Vapor and the Hurricane work together is it's like a symbiosis. As it says on Vapor's um, file card, he is cybernetically linked to his aircraft, which means he can react much faster using voice command capabilities as well as direct server linkage to the weapon systems, quote-unquote, which means that man and machine are one. He knows this aircraft better than any other pilot knows any other aircraft ever flown which means that he can move faster with it, he can intercept you much faster, he can anticipate what you, what he can do with his aircraft towards what you can do with yours, which means he's very fast, and he'll, he'll shoot you down like that. <laughs> I will concede that point. I mean, all I have to say about Ace, though, just to, to sum him up, is that he stayed on the forefront of technology, whereas with Vapor... It's like one-trick pony. This is his machine, and he will fly it into the ground. So, forefront of technology, suggesting that the Sky Striker is uh, obsolete in a way? That somehow the G.I. <laughs> Joe, somehow G.I. Joe has moved beyond the Sky Striker, and it is not the king of the air. I still we, believe that... Conceding it- that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> all I have to say is that, I mean, it, it probably had a lot to do with the action figure as well. The fact that Ace is an enduring character, and let's keep sticking to a character that has some fan following, as opposed to minting a new figure, which would just be easily forgotten. Whereas with G.I. Joe, there is some level of continuity of characters. But yes, Rob, you're absolutely right. The Sky Striker is G.I. Joe's premier jet, but of course, being its first jet, I won't deny that it is perhaps a little bit older than the other items in its stable. But it is still a potent dogfighter, and I will school your ass. Stick around. I think Vapor, he would be a class of Cobra pilots. I don't think of him as an individual. I think they would pair them to the jet, which means that 
they could still develop newer jets and they could have better technology incorporated into those jets that they use. So that as the jets get better, so does the pilot's connection to the jet. Yes. All of which are strengths of the sort of vapor program, if we could call it that. Mm. But you're neglecting very conveniently the huge shortcoming of the vapor's cybernetic linkage that the shunts actually burn out with overuse. I don't know, you probably know this a lot better than I do, but I'm I'm trying to recall the file card. They only have about 20 minutes of actual dogfighting time in them. You could call that a disadvantage. As as I say on the the file card, he's unbeatable for 30 minutes before he blacks out from, quote, a massive overload in the image processing centers in his brain, unquote. But I think in the way that the craft is designed as a short-range interceptor, very close, he doesn't have to be up there for more than 30 minutes. He's going to get it done very, very fast. And it's a very fast jet. It comes equipped with two 20,000-pound thrust engines. And on a, on a similar aircraft, well, I mean, much bigger, the Eurofighter Typhoon, its maximum speed is Mach 2.0. Now, I'm thinking with this being a bit smaller, it could probably push more than 2.0, which means he can get out there very fast. He can get on top of you before you even realize he's there, take you down with his eight air-to-air missiles and get back before he even has to develop a headache and have to take Panada the next day. (laughs) (laughs) So, in terms of pilots, I'd chalk one up for the Vapor. The Vapor has a technological advantage, definitely. The Stratovipers, you know, for all of their training and stuff, they are arrogant and that does definitely bring them a notch down. It's it's probably the only thing I can think of that's really bad on the Night Raven. (laughs) We've jumped around a bit. Uh, We wanted to see who comes out on top in terms of armament and we only really got as far as the Raven's payload. I'm going to make my entry and just mention that out of the three jets under consideration, the Sky Striker outranges them both by about 100 miles in terms of striking distance because it comes equipped with two and possibly more if you care to shuffle the payload a little bit to AIM-54A Phoenix air-to-air missiles. Boom. They can strike <laughs> targets from beyond visual range quite comfortably. So, long before you guys could get a shot off, Ace has already got two missiles streaking their way towards you. What are you going to do? Well, the Night Raven, being a South fighter, has a very, very cool little thing called an ECM. Okay, ECM is a very, very powerful um, little tool used uh, in the military. It jams control signals. And something like the AIMS, the AIMS definitely need to have radar. They're not necessarily heat-seeking. They're actually more radar-guided missiles, if um, memory serves. Agreed, yes, the Phoenix is a radar-guided missile. And the ECM is designed to counteract that kind of attack. ECMs are very, very powerful in that regard, and they are still they are used very heavily today in modern military warfare, to the point of if, for example, your Sky Striker could get a lock on the, the Night Raven, for starters, and manage to fire off its missiles, the Night Raven could still be aware enough of them and... I don't want to go as far as to say I'd run them, but it could definitely reach a ceiling that I think that those missiles wouldn't be able to to climb to. So I think uh, I'm not so sure about that, but okay, cool. Uh, it can't outrun them either, but it could outrange them. If yeah. th- if they were fired on the edge of their range, I mean, if they were fired at a two, 200 kilometer standoff, the amount of time and space the Raven would have to maneuver would be huge, and the missiles 
by being at, at the edge of their range would have less usable range to actually maneuver once they got closer to the target. But that's still years away from where you guys would have to be in order to strike me. Of course, but then you also have to look at the tactical advantages of, of doing something like that. I mean, the payload on the Sky Striker is what? How many missiles? How many wingtips has it got? Six there are six total. hard points, Yeah, but I realized that you can shuffle the armament quite nicely. I mean, the hard points are all the same size, peg, so you could put, if you have a few extras, you could fill it with... AIM-54s, you could fill it with sparrows, you could fill it with sidewinders, you could do any combination of the above, and even the cluster bombs that the Conquest bears can be utilized on the Sky Striker. Which is very cool, and... It has a ground attack, a ground, ground attack capability as well. So... The big thing with the the Raven now, and this is what I'm getting at with the tactical sort of decision, Sky Striker would have to be sent up to engage a Raven because a Raven may have been spotted in the in an AO, and they need to intercept it. So immediately the Raven is is always keeping itself aware of what's happening around it. If you're carrying aims, and it's generally between two to four on the standard aircraft, you want to make sure you hit the target. Now, if for example the Raven knows you're coming, and um, it's on its way to do a bombing run or whatever, it's definitely going to kick some ass, <laughs> you know, to get away from you. I mean, it's not going to let you get into to a range to, to hit it with a missile. From a tactical point, the pilot's going to try and keep himself on the edge of the ring as much as he can. Yeah, but you're not going to win this debate by turning tail and running, buddy. No, but the Night Raven can still accomplish its mission if it's mission is to, for example, bomb the flag. Um, no, no, its mission in this very specific instance is air superiority. Okay, so in air superiority, fine. The Sky Striker does definitely have points in terms of long range, but once again, coming back to if the Night Raven is surprised by the Sky Striker, the Sky Striker has the advantage. If the Night Raven itself surprises the Sky Striker, it's dead. Okay. Because you just I'm going to interpret that as a point in favor of the Sky Striker. No, I'm gonna. I would say it's a. They're kind of evenly matched in that regard because surprise is a big part of the game. Also, no Sky Striker is gonna go out alone. A Night Raven would most likely go as a single file aircraft. Uh, Why would you say that? Um, stealths don't generally fly in squadrons of sure. more than one. It's always a single mission. It's always um, to help. Firstly, eliminate its radar footprint, and secondly, it's not the kind of jet that you just use to willy-nilly do something. You normally plan the operation, you normally send it out, and you go and do it. It's one person that's trained to do exactly that job. A Sky Striker would normally go in a squadron of four or six to engage it, so I would imagine that that much interference would definitely hurt the Night Raven's uh, air-to-air superiority. I think, though, for the purpose of this debate, we are going to enter in a hypothetical realm where these three aircraft are actually having a duel. It's one-on-one-on-one. On one on one. By the way, Rob, the Night Raven's already blown your VTOL to shit. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and why is that? Come on, Rob, weigh in on this debate. Why would the VTOL be beaten by... I'm not sure. Someone tell me. Okay, I was being facetious, but I would say the one thing the Raven could do for the VTOL, if the VTOL has 30 minutes of full-flexed combat capability. Well, the tactic I would use is I would go around you as much as I could and keep you irritated as much as I could to actually create stress within you, knowing that the technological superiority of the VTOL to the Night Raven, and 
I figured that there is some kind of you know technology in the the VTOL that would definitely um, be superior to the Night Raven. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'd keep you busy, I'd keep you stressed, and I'd keep you in the sky. And when I start feeling that you're going to miss, I, that's when I'd release my two little toxin heat-seeking twin missiles of doom upon you. <laughs> Though you are assuming you can outfly, or sort of outmaneuver the hurricane. The Hurricane seems to me like a very maneuverable aircraft. I mean, if you look at all the control surfaces that it's got, little cannon wings in the front and those canted wings at the back and this interesting tail arrangement, it looks like a very slippery, futuristic dogfighter. Rob, no. what do you say? Yeah, no, I think so as well. And the fact it's called a Hurricane, which means Hurricanes have very high speeds <laughs> spinning around a center point and... Yeah, I think this thing could Compared definitely to fly your... around. Ah! Ravens. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it would be able to definitely fly rings around both of these aircraft. And it doesn't have to engage in long-range fighting because it would only be sent up when it's completely necessary. It would be a close en- weapon. Exactly. Maybe. You know, no. when you're close enough, they won't send it up against something that, that it's going to have to fly for miles and miles and miles before it can take you on. Look, beyond visual range kills are tricky, and and I think a rarity in air-to-air combat. And typically, you'd score your most kills against targets that cannot maneuver. If you're trying to fire a Phoenix at another jet, as opposed to a helicopter or a tanker or a bomber or something... Your chance of striking the target are pretty slim, so I'll concede that. All right, so you actually I will concede do- that the Sky Striker probably missed both your asses in the opening round of this battle. But once you start getting close in, the fact that the Sky Striker has radar-guided and heat-seeking air-to-air missiles, and not one but two very potent guns—I mean, do not underestimate the gun no. kill. Because once you are in a close-in, tight-turning dogfight, the ranges that you're swinging your nose around uh, each other are sometimes too small for a missile to adequately arm itself. So the gun is not outdated by any stretch of the imagination. And I'm sorry, but the Sky Strike has better guns than both your planes. No, of course, mostly because mine faced the wrong direction. Which is bizarre, and it's just a toy choice and has no real-world equivalency, I think. How are your guns better, though? Because, I mean, you're also not necessarily going to be equipped with the outside yes, cannon. <laughs> okay. If, I mean, the, if the underslung cannon is not used, and I'm using a, I don't know, a drop tank of fuel, for instance, I still have a 20mm nose gun. Oh, is it not a 50mm Vulcan cannon? That would be in the gun pod. No, the gun pod, no, that's different. The gun pod, they didn't provide specs on that. I'm going to call Hasbro bullshit on that one. Oh, you actually the gun, changing... The gun pod is 50mm, just like the Veritech Fighters gun pod is 50mm, and That's also correct. situated in the same place in the craft. And yes. the nose gun is the standard 20mm arm. Surprisingly, the Blackbird nor the Night Raven have any forward-firing Vulcans at all. I don't think anyone was expecting the Blackbird to engage in air-to-air combat, Paul. No, no but I mean... <laughs> I'm, I'm breaking not, it to you gently, mate. But. No, no, of course. But I mean, like, that's the whole thing. There's no point in that. That's the beauty of the Night Raven, is that there's no point in actually engaging somebody in air-to-air. You're aware of the Clint Eastwood film Firefox. I think it was from 1982. I know the name. I don't really know what it's about. The Night Raven is equally based on the SR-71 
and the MIG, gosh, 35? I don't know. It has some, if you look at screen captures from that movie, the, the, the resemblance is, is very strong. And that was quite an air-to-aircraft. I mean, of course, the climactic final battle has Clint Eastwood in the stolen Russian MIG, experimental MIG, prototype being engaged in a dogfight with a second prototype flown by a Russian pilot desperate to destroy the plane before it falls into American hands. And, yeah, as a dogfighter, this fictional MiG slash Night Raven was pretty potent, but... Once again, only in terms of uh, missile combat. I just want to just put a final nail on the coffin of the aims. Sorry. The aims are not high maneuverability. That's the other problem. Which with one them. are we talking about? The AIM-9s or Sidewinders, which are extremely maneuverable? No, the AIM-9s, yes. The AIM-12s, no. The AIM-12s are your long range. They don't have a, a high turning mechanism, if you know Sorry, what I mean. They're the not... AIM-54s. The, the AIM-54s. I thought it was the AIM-12s. Oh, my bad. Sorry. Anyway, in terms of actual, you know, tail-to-nose dogfighting, I would say that the defense the Night Raven has is not allowing itself to get into a situation like that. But it has no adequate defenses other than firing its guns backwards at you. Which I think, if it had to really exist, would be a very dangerous weapon to use, considering how many um, twists that you get into in a dogfight when somebody's on your tail. You're always twisting left or right and trying to get yourself into an emblement, trying to you know, get your tail out of the nose so to speak, or get their nose out of your tail. And you sh- if you're firing guns, those bullets, while you're swerving, they're going to hit your rear stabilizers. You know, they're going to actually hurt your own plane. You're going to end up shooting yourself, essentially. You'd have to uh, be turning extremely tight to curve a bullet into your own tail. Uh, I, I don't know. I think that might be uh, a job for the Mythbusters team. Well, uh, I- it might be. I mean, them being 20-millimeter cannons on the Raven only have the advantage of, yeah, it's um, it's going to shoot pretty quickly. It's not like the 50s or anything higher, actually, that's going to have a bit of a, a stopgap. So I, unfortunately, Minor and Raven and I don't have much defense if you get your nose in our tails. Well, except the gimmick of the guns facing backwards. I mean, I think that's completely unexpected. And the pilot of the Night Raven would have probably have practiced and honed his ability to fire those guns backward. And he has a second a second seat in there. He would probably yeah, be controlling those backward guns, and there'd be a camera, which means that no, he would be able to keep them safe from behind. In a surprise attack scenario, if, say, the attacking fighter was to approach a Night Raven from behind, which is obviously a, a position of, of advantage, thinking, if this Night Raven does anything aggressive, I'm just going to light it up with a missile or a gun, he could be suckered into... A fatal mistake because that Night Raven's gun would be zeroed on you, but that's a very unlikely scenario. It's a very unlikely scenario, but but it's a scenario nonetheless. For example, to bring down a Night Raven, the approach I think that would be needed would be to definitely try and strong arm it out of the AO. It would be to make sure that it has no way of turning around to attack you. So maybe that's kind of what they had in mind when they they put the guns on its back, so to speak. Maybe because that's they, the they knew that the Raven's primary uh, defense is to kick in its afterburners and race out of there. I also think from a toy design and from a comic book and cartoon design, and I think uh, more comic book than a cartoon, because a cartoon tends to put lasers on them everywhere anyway. But this jet has actually got such a tactical advantage over most aircraft that it needed some kind of fatal flaw. And I think... <laughs> 
No, but it did. It needed some kind of serious fatal flaw to basically cut its nails a bit. You know, it needed to not be able to have forward firing guns. And also maybe the maneuverability on it was considered when they made it a Cobra vehicle because it's very Cobra to have. It's very offensive. It's sharp. It's dangerous and all that. But, you know, you hear you got the American Eagle, which is, you know, your F-14, the Skystriker, and it needed to have some kind of dominance over the evil Viper's aircraft. That is why the VTOL might have similar sort of shortcomings. Well, yeah, that's probably why it is only able to go for that short period of time. Because if, if he could stay forever, he would just destroy all the aircraft in the air. That's correct. I mean, if you look at Cobra Troopers, you look at something like the Undertow, you look at Snow Serpents, you look at any of the specialized Vipers, Night Vipers included, they're all really badass. They're all like well-equipped, state-of-the-art technology, well-trained and merciless. There's no human condition that's going to prevent them from killing somebody or from blowing something up or from, you know, kicking dogs, you know, like Cobra Commander does. That's why the troopers are so strong, because when the Joes defeat them, it's this, wow, we've defeated these really badass Mamba Bajambas. With the planes, it's the same psychology. Taking out a Night Raven for a Sky Striker is a big deal. Taking out the VTOL is a big deal for a Sky Striker, because both the Hurricane and the Raven have so much technological superiority over the Sky Striker in a lot of ways. It's always a case of the underdog coming out on exactly. top. Sure. That's correct, yeah. And I'll take uh, that as a point in my favor, too. <laughs> well, unfortunately, it is a point in your favor, but then at the same time, it's, it's the default point that both Bob and I win. have. Yeah, yeah, it's the weakness in, the, in that sort of the stereotypical narrative. You have to win because you are the good guy. Exactly. Oh, well, so we, we, talk, we can speak in the abstract about the aircraft themselves. That, that's what this debate has been about. Uh, yeah. to, to swing it back to, once again, armament, Rob, the Hurricane has got a gun, quite a sizable cannon. What is its function? Well, it's a, it's a gun, so it would obviously be to shoot shit down. But at I mean, 75 millimeters, yes, it, can't, I think it can't hold that much ammunition or have a high with, rate of fire. I think, as you said, with the Sky Striker, that's kind of improbable. Because I look for pictures for, for aircraft with 75 millimeter cannons on them, and I could only find one, and it looked like a bomber. <laughs> Otherwise, otherwise they're just tanks equipped with them. And are you talking about the Spectre, the converted Hercules? I th- no, it wasn't that. It was much smaller. Wait, hold on. Seventy-five mil cannon. Yes. Jeez, dude. I know. I <laughs> that's think a that's bunker kind of, buster. It's kind of yeah. It's kind of insane. Even though I mean, on the blueprints they say there's a huge section over here where they can keep armaments. I think that is a bit improbable. So. I think you can probably bump it down to just an air-to-air. Looking at the toy, and I don't have any um, measuring device on me, but it, it looks more like a 30 millimeter cannon. Yeah, I could probably agree with that. I'd say that's more realistic for air-to-air engagements. Wow, 75 mil cannon, that is a ground pounder. That is designed to, do, to hit tanks and to hit bunkers. That's yeah. Something, I mean, you don't even need... A 20 mil cannon is actually enough to <laughs> to pierce the hull of most aircraft. I think that's yeah. why the United States settled on that. Or most mm. uh, you know warplane manufacturers, uh, Northrop and their ilk, settled on the 20 millimeter Vulcan because it's the right size to carry the right amount of ammunition and the right rate of fire. This is yeah. very important for aerial dogfighting because. You just need to be able to drill a lot more ammunition on target Mm -hmm. in order to ensure a hit. Because if one of those bottle-sized bullets strikes a jet engine, forget it. 
that plane's out of commission. But you just need to fill the sky with enough lead to actually ensure the hit. By 1990, they weren't being terribly accurate with the way they were just putting these numbers onto the blueprints. By 1990, I don't think they were quite as finely tuned as they were in the 80s. Yeah, I mean, they weren't being terribly specific anymore with the types of armaments it was equipped with. 75mm, that's just completely incongruous with what the hurricane is. You know, an interceptor, basically. I think when the guys at Hasbro were getting together, the marketing team obviously came in there and they were like, well, say, instead of 30, make it 70, you know, because that just sounds better. Bigger is better. Yeah, Yeah. kids will lap it up. 75 millimeter, it sounds legit. (laughs) Wow. Why settle for 30 when you can settle for 75? Hell, make it 105. (laughs) Well, I think in dogfights, the Hurricane probably has the advantage. I mean, it has the... High maneuverability, it has a nose cannon, and it has an advantage of a drone. Explain. At the back of the craft, it's equipped with a drone, which you can fire off and control separately from controlling the actual aircraft. Which means that you can't anticipate this this thing peeling off and becoming another target that you can't hit as easily as you could. Well, not as easily. I mean, the hurricane in itself is quite small. But hitting a tiny little thing like that, almost impossible. The only downside to that is it's only equipped with one missile. So once it's fired that off, it's not very useful. But if you maneuver it in the correct position, you can definitely take out another aircraft in close quarters. That would probably be the tactic that the hurricane employs most of all. Mm. Because, I mean, especially in this context when it's one-on-one-on-one three-way battle, the opportunity for one of these crafts to sprout its own wingman is huge. Mm -hmm. If you lined up a shot for your opponent, your drone could then use that opportunity to drop in behind your opponent's. It would all be a question of who gets off the shot first. first. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Night Raven has that little recon jet, and it, that itself is equipped with 20 millimeter cannons. As far as I'm concerned, that is a high altitude, low altitude vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not- just saying, according to the blueprints, it has cannons. So you could deploy it in some way, but I still find that thing very improbable. If it's not just used as you suggested, Paul, as something that you drop and you're yeah. inserting someone. Because the guy's just riding a rocket. And that's pretty the, much you you can't help your you can't help the Night Raven out with that. You can just sort of shoot off and become like a little dummy target that anyone else can shoot at. <laughs> Honestly, well, in, that, I mean, in that, as a decoy, it could be quite a good function because, it, I mean, it would certainly burn hot enough to, to fool, I suppose, heat seekers. If it's an unmanned little vehicle, because, I mean, I know Cobra likes, you know, throwing away people like in the fire bat. But <laughs> <laughs> I think they wouldn't really waste personnel that easily like an interesting thing to note about that drone though as i've mentioned in earlier episodes of this podcast the drone did exist on the original sr-71 and although it was considered a bit of a failed prototype it did exist so it was a real consideration and for something to be a real consideration through that many stages of debate and, and planning it does mean something but I see it firstly as a hindrance. It would actually destroy the maneuverability of the plane. It's a high-altitude insertion craft, and as far as I'm concerned, the guns shouldn't even be there, and I don't even think it requires a glass canopy. It should have just been sealed and um, dropped in. It is still uh, a toy, though, Paul, and I'm sure kids from a got toy a, kick, a kick out of having this additional play feature. From a toy perspective, though, I have to say, and the 12-year-old and me and the 8-year-old and me love it. I love the fact that I've got this jet with this little... Sentinel that like flies around it and protects it from the big bad sky strikers and stuff like that. <laughs>
And I would say, as a toy, that's where my countermeasure comes into your Sky Strikers dogging. What, in the fun factor? No, not in the fun factor side of it, because... I think I've already won in that. As I said, the Hurricane is much smaller. It's more fun to sort of swing around. I must admit, VTOL is a huge plus in terms of playtime. Yeah. Because accurately taking off and landing one of these vehicles is... Yeah, it always leaves leaves you a little bit wanting. Yeah, you're trying to put that thing down. It's not fun. It just takes too long. This mm-hmm. one, bam, just straight down. <laughs> Landed. And it can land in even more cooler positions, you know, on top of sort of bookcases, on little nightstands. Well, these things you have to, play-wise, you have to land them down long corridors in the middle of the road at night because you don't want people to see you. <laughs> yeah, so I think if we're going with playability right now, I think, yeah, Hurricane wins. A bit of a disadvantage to the Night Raven is if you were running around the street with a big black jet, um, somebody might actually think you're carrying a firearm. <laughs> it is big enough to, to have that kind of profile. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So you might get shot, for real. <laughs> Especially in South Africa. <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering. Just crazy, bro. <laughs> it would look more like a battle axe or something. Yeah, but I mean, sort of like edge somebody, weapon. <laughs> a guitar. Yeah, somebody would think you're nuts. Well, yeah, like a guitar, man. One of those. Jeez, that's, those V's. Like, yeah, that's cool. Awesome, like heavy metal guitars or like. Sweet. Hard rocks. Okay, guys. Well, here's my trump card that I just have to throw out before. We tally things up. In terms of pilot survivability, the Sky Striker really has no contest. Because it's the only vessel out of these three that comes equipped with parachutes. <laughs> that's <Ta-da! true. laughs> I that's just... I don't think that's an advantage because that's not important to Cobra. They don't need their, their top little pilot to, to survive. What do you mean? Cobra has as many parachutes as they have bullets. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, but on, the hurricane, on the Hurricane and the Raven, neither of them have a functioning parachute feature. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, that's true. Well, toy-wise. Toy-wise. We don't need them to survive. Cobra has hundreds of these guys. Incorrect. Just... The amount of training and money and nourishment and, and time you need in order to create a frontline FOSS jet pilot... You do not want to be sacrificing them willy-nilly. They are every bit as crucial to the organization as the vehicles that they fly. In fact, more so. You can produce a jet in a matter of weeks or months, but to produce the pilots to control it... It takes years. Absolutely. And dedication. Definitely. I mean, you know, not everybody who enrolls for flight class is going to be a pilot. I imagine Cobra do enlist a lot of disgruntled professional pilots from around the world who already have a bit of training to their name. But in order to fly the kind of sophisticated aircraft that Cobra operates, well, that takes plenty additional training, I'm sure. Yeah. Definitely. Cobra has the more skilled pilots. Perhaps, but they do not treat them with... Uh, with well, they don't treat them with the way that I think about it. Yeah, that's true. It's fanaticism. Disposable, yeah. disposable, which is the downfall of an organization like Cobra. That's why, you know, they don't give them parachutes. <laughs> AVAC has a parachute. Yeah, well, he needs it. With the Hurricane and the Night Raven, you ride that sucker down. In fact, with the Raven... It's even more laughable because if you try and eject, <laughs> you're just going to be heading toward the deck even faster. But then it well, just, for me, it just comes back to the, the, the vapor's ability. Within 30 minutes, he's unbeatable. They know he's not going to die. <laughs> he's going to get up there, finish his mission, he's going to get down. It's not necessary to have parachutes. Let's paint a scenario quickly just 
um, because we haven't really covered it fully, Cobra knows where the pit is. And the first strike that it uh, takes on the pit is, you know, an airstrike by Night Ravens. Or maybe in this case, Night Raven. Night Raven would be very successful at that. I think it would be able to deliver a payload and it turn the pit into a big hole. At least, you know, it would get through three or four levels of the redundancy of the pit. Mm. You know, if it had to drop something nuclear. I mean, the Cobra is not above that. And uh, the Raven itself is designed to do that. That's the number one function of the Stealth Fighter is to deliver a nuclear payload. Oh, you reckon uh, the Night Raven is capable of taking on a nuclear payload? That Definitely. missile bay, that bomb bay, you can put lots mm. of different types of... Missiles and stuff in there. Uh, a warhead that can do significant damage to something like the pit is not much bigger than the Bombay. No, actually, it's not even bigger. It's not even that big. They're normally about a meter. Lies. Lies. Oh, the warhead. Need, yeah, but yeah. you need sort of a, a bunker-busting warhead on top of that to Smart deliver. Ball. Look, I think the Raven, it just doesn't have the hull space. It is actually quite a, a dinky fighter in terms of real world dimensions it's far smaller than the SR-71 and far smaller than most bombers so it would True. need to carry a strike package like that externally it would yeah. defeat its stealth or you could just replace the drone which with would the also nuclear missile on top also defeat the stealth well aspect. not entirely but how quickly could the pit scramble sky strikers to defend itself this is the problem the pit doesn't have an adequate runway uh, Exactly. The pit, to be honest, G.I. Joe is sorely lacking a VTOL fighter interceptor. Mm-hmm. Because it would have to scramble Sky Strikers from a nearby Air Force base. That's correct. And another, and the problem with that is Ace is most likely in the pit. The only trump card I would imagine Joe would have is that Ghost Rider is always ready and waiting for like cuck to happen. But, yeah, that's that's the one advantage the Raven would have. I mean, on any kind of political target, if Cobra wanted to take out any substantial target, things like, you know, the Pentagon or whatever. But, I mean, if it had to, it would do some serious damage. I mean, the, the idea of your enemy having a stealth fighter is a frightening concept. That is one thing where I think that the Night Raven definitely deserves points. More so than the VTOL would, sorry, yeah. Rob, and, and the Sky Striker, because the Sky Striker, yes... Sky Striker is cool because the F-14 is a multi-role aircraft and it is designed to do bombing and all that, but it can be intercepted, hopefully, by Rob's Hurricane. <laughs> yeah, the, Just, Joes, the Joes need to operate Hurricanes, I think. Uh, that's my decision after this debate. But yeah, I think I agree with Paul. Just the fact that your enemy has a stealth vehicle that you cannot spot is it, is a, a huge concept. advantage. Yeah, it's scary to think that someone can fly something into your airspace where your civilians live and just stop bombing the shit out of them. And also, just to comment on the SR-71, it has a flight record of never being shot down. It's never been shot down. They've crashed them, and they've had malfunctions where they've gone down, but they've never been shot down. We need to clarify, though, that the SR-71's stealth, if you can call it that, was... Largely in part to its paint. <laughs> its paint, yes. Yes, and its it, shape, yeah. Its, its defensibility lay in the fact that it moved faster and higher than any other aircraft or even surface-to-air missiles. The Night Raven, once again, I mean, I'm not entirely sure its shape lends itself to stealth. I mean, certainly the engine nacelles are not stealthy at all. No, I can agree with that because the turbines themselves aren't um, covered the same way. In the SR-71, both the the 71, the Blackbird, and uh, the YF-12, which is the prototype built before the SR-71, both have a turbine, a cone, 
to sort of deflect with the vibration and stuff on the actual turbines, you know, like unnecessary un- a vibration. So they have that. The original YF-12 had more of a flat nose, whereas the SR-71 has the rounded arrow-shaped nose, which is clearly a design upgrade from the, the YF-12. And that's why, it, you know, it, it is a, a design plus. It's something that the Raven has gone for stylistically more than functionally as a, a functional thing. And yes, I would imagine that the one thing the Raven does have against it are those two turbines that pull in a lot of air. I mean, even the then boosters, again, for its for its size, they are frighteningly large engines. Yeah, they are. And they have uh, to be to to get Mach three for a craft of that size. You know, it can like, do up to Mach three point five. Mm. Yeah, but that's the only problem with three point five, and this is quite a, a clear fact across all of the information I found is that it can only hold that for but between four and five minutes. Before it yeah, but that's the- that's time on target, man. So you can yeah. get from beyond early warning radar range, yeah, and onto target in that interval. That's correct. Deliver the- your nuke or whatever it is that you're carrying. The only bad thing to the the 3.5 is that even on the original Blackbird, when you start hitting 3.4, the structural integrity of the aircraft itself starts to compromise. And that is why you have to get there. As you said, it's a time-to-target thing. It's not something you can maintain. And it's a very dangerous thing, I'd imagine, because once you've hit that speed and you deploy, you have to start preparing to slow the, the craft down because, and you have to drop altitude because the, the altitude drop is, is part of the design feature to help the craft's um, stability whilst it tears up. That is a, a downside to the, the, the SR-71, which is why we have the 117 and the F-22 now. Okay, I might be way out of line with this, but I imagine your stability is better higher up where there's less friction, where the air is less dense. That's so correct. What, you, would, you would lower altitude. It's supposed to lower altitude to cool down as opposed to going up because going higher uh, is a risk, apparently. But I don't know. That sounds like some questionable physics, my friend. Going higher, the air is less dense and less friction and, and less... Less drag. Yeah, and there would be less heat. The lower you drop into the atmosphere, the denser the air surrounding you is, the you know more friction, actually, the more heat. You're actually right. I remembered it wrong. And I mean, the, <laughs> the, the Raven is, is well within stratospheric flights. I mean, that would be on the, the edge of space, basically. Yeah, I mean, the ceiling is... Uh, it can go Mach 3.32 at 86,000 feet. So okay. that's pretty That's pretty high. I'm <laughs> sure it can go higher, <laughs> is all I'm saying. No, I'm sure it could. I mean, these are unfortunately these stats are taken from things like the impel cards and stuff like that. In fact, the the impel card says the combat ceiling is sixty thousand feet. Just to quote a disadvantage, because I like I enjoy quoting the disadvantage on this because I would like to be you know superior, but also for its weird quirks. It's only got a range. Okay, and when I say only, okay, it's only got a range of three thousand two hundred and fifty miles. Which, for example, Cobra being enemy of America means that you'd have to move them inland quite a bit. I'd imagine getting them to a strategic position inland would be a very difficult thing for Cobra to do because that would require having, you know, some kind of base inland. 3,250 um, miles can get you from the Gulf of Mexico to Utah and back. Yeah. And I'm but sure then, the, the Raven would be able to incorporate a mid-air refueling feature if it was in danger of running its tanks dry. Also, it's a it's a risk that one would take. You know, unfortunately, I'm sure Cobra's giant snakehead air refueling, you know, base <laughs> would probably stand out. 
Okay, well, how do we wrap this up, gents? <laughs> I think we're just going to have to agree to disagree. Although it seems like Paul has sort of painted the Night Raven as not the best plane ever. I'm not but sure. But it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're very honest, which I think is quite nice. I mean, I think Stephen is very reluctant to accept any jabs at his beloved Sky Striker. And so am I with the VTOL. At what it does, it's unbeatable. And the cannon itself says that. I just Personal. think that yeah. the Hurricane as a toy... Never hold the mythical status the Raven and the Sky Striker hold. And between the Raven and the Sky Striker, sure, the Raven is beautiful, but as a toy, it is flawed in ways that the Sky Striker, in its simplicity and its faithful recreation of a military toy, manages to skip. The Sky Striker's yeah. just got it all. Play features, adaptability. I think that's just personal preference. I mean, I really well, do prefer playing with the Hurricane to the Sky Striker. It just comes a point where the, it's pushing those wings in and out. It's just not fun anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Me, personally, if I have to look at it all three as a toy, the Sky Striker... I'm sorry, Steve. As cool as it is, it really is a cool jet. I love the F-14. I'm a big fan of the F-14. I'm a big fan of the Valkyrie of the VF-1 based on the F-14. Love it. Love it to bits. But as a Joe jet... As a Joe toy, it's not my absolute favorite. And maybe that's got a lot to do with the fact that I don't have an original Sky Striker. Don't say that, Paul. Now you've let all the listeners know how stunted your collection is. <laughs> how can you possibly give an honest appraisal on these toys without owning the original? Yes, friends, if you're going to buy a Sky Striker, make sure you buy original. For a few simple reasons. Landing gear. Rubber with the rivets. Beautiful. You can land it on asphalt. We've tried. And <laughs> at a, a severe rate of knots, no less. I mean, Rob was running that sucker down the road. Mm-hmm. It has the screw hole lined up perfectly for the flag's tow vehicle, which the remake doesn't have. It has a nice glossy finish, which some have said is actually a criticism, but I think it is way more beautiful than the remake. And it is able to hold its missiles without them dropping off in a stiff breeze. And your pilot isn't lying down. Your pilot is sitting upright. (laughs) It's a dual cockpit. It includes parachutes. Wow, I had great fun messing around with the Sky Strikers parachutes the other day. Hey, man, I, I just, I recommend it to anyone. It has the swing wing feature, which is something that every more premium format G.I. Joe or Cobra vehicle has tried to have an additional feature in addition to just the wheels lowering and raising. On the Sky Striker, you've got the variable sweep wings, which is just aesthetic perfection. On the Raven, you've got the pop-up speed brakes. On the Phantom X-19, you've got the engine nacelles moving further backwards, I don't know, whatever. But with the Sky Strike, it's just such a, a notable feature. It draws yeah, so much attention to itself. It's, just, it's it so smooth and well-engineered. Mm-hmm. And was that a little bit of a jibe there, Paul? <laughs> also makes it easier to also store. easier to store. <laughs> well, the reason why we buy... Yeah, put it on the shelf. Yeah. The reason why we buy the 30th anniversary version is so that we feel less precious about cutting it up and disassociating the wings from the wheels, which is what I've done with my remake Sky Striker. A big thing for my Sky Strikers, um, and I say errors because I have two, 
Um, with my 30th um, Sky Striker, one of the main reasons that motivated me to buying them was that I was hoping that my purchasing power would let Hasbro know that I, as a consumer, want more Retro Joe vehicles. Even though the modern 30th Sky Striker isn't the best, it, it has got some heavy criticisms. As Steve has pointed out, a lot of the, the 1980s features are much better than the new one. The new one is still a great toy. I like the cockpit of that vehicle very, very much, but I do have problems with the missiles. Everybody does. And I never had rubber wheels, but every time I hear Steve talk about them, I do kind of miss them. And The mechanism also has a ridge that prevents the wheels from caving into the mm-hmm. belly of the craft. The mechanism is vastly different on the 30th anniversary, and one questions why, but maybe there were pitfalls in the redesign of it. I mean, let's face it, they had to go back to scratch on this vehicle. Exactly, and just a few things. I mean, it's a freaking Sky Striker that we managed to buy in box in um, our adult lives, which does give it a point of merit in some regard, and it's still the same size. They didn't reduce its scale or anything to save on plastics and stuff. And Well, they did the save on, on shelf space. By putting it in a smaller box, by yes. making the cockpit basically a, a separate part and the wings a separate part, but then it gives you these clunky, kibbly joints. Yes. Not so much on the cockpit, but the wings, which are so vitally, you know, it's so important for the lines to be clean and unencumbered for you to have these, oh, no, these bloody loaves of bread, man. But I think we can all agree the most irritating feature about the Stadius, I hate the fact that the wings have to come out with the landing gear. It makes no sense to me. Which is why... Easily doctored, though, man. And as I said, we we don't feel precious about the 30th because they seem to be in abundance still. (laughs) And can I just say that Ace is possibly one of the best vehicle drivers to ever come with a Joe vehicle. I think he's top-notch. I think he's one of the best toys to come out in the line. And... I was very happy to have Ace, if anything, from that box. He's a great, great toy. They've reused his mold quite a bit in the Cobra, you know, jets and with Cobra Commander in the Starscream variant, which still confuses me why they couldn't do a Night Raven Starscream. But anyway. Keep dreaming. A full-size Night Raven. (laughs) Anything that bears the words Night Raven will be stricken from a toy shelf because of the the rise of Cobra Night Raven. I mean, one of the huge pitfalls, apparently, uh, toy retailers still battling to get rid of that puppy. It doesn't help that it's got like a boner that comes out that you have to grab you know, to shoot the missiles and then you have to cock it like a shotgun. (laughs) <laughs> it's lost on me even the, the design in the film it looked okay I really hate the hokey I think the co- cockpit in the film version of that plane is really horrible but when I got my Night Raven my original 86 one when it was delivered and I opened that box and I actually got to see how massive that jet is it changed things for me and G.I. Joe definitely and it's a toy that I don't think if it saw re-release I don't know if they could save on size the way they did with the Sky Striker it's yeah. a big single piece jet. Definitely. If they had to do it, if they could um, find a better way of incorporating the cockpit mechanism, they have found a way of improving the landing gear, as um, seen with the, the Sky Force Sky Raven. Yes. They've already got, there's, there's an improvement on the landing gear already, but if they further improved it, made it more durable somehow, that would be great. Would you do away with the drop-down cockpit? It's like a yes and no. I really love the feature, but as a toy, I love it as a feature, but I would really prefer a, a cockpit on the top. 
you know, with a normal canopy like any other jet opens, even if it did some kind of weird double door opening, that would be cool too. I wouldn't be against that. And even if they didn't go for the same sort of acrylic style plastic and they went for a slightly more even X19 plastic, it wouldn't bug me as much. But if they could do that without shrinking it, that would be cool. One thing, by way of conclusion, you mentioned the Phantom X-19. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about that jet. It didn't make an entry on this list because I guess we already have our firm favorites ahead of it. But its role as a G.I. Joe jet, what does it do? It is the most science fiction-based G.I. Joe piece of hardware. It has got a conceptual real-world counterpart, but in terms of the G.I. Joe organization, what do you see the Phantom X-19 primarily doing? I see its primary role as being the G.I. Joe's uh, been locked in combat with Cobra for a while. Um, Cobra's not going away. It, maybe it's a time in the, the G.I. Joe timeline where the jugglers aren't as prominent as they would become. So this is the Joes finding a real solution to the Cobra problem by developing a jet that has stealth capabilities, has very good air-to-air combat capabilities, and would essentially go out and destroy Cobra bases. So a ground team would discover them, and there's enough G.I. Joe ground pounders to spread around the planet, and they would find these places, and the X-19, its role would be to go in there and cause some serious damage. That's what I imagine it would be. It would be the sort of first slap from G.I. Joe. It would be when G.I. Joe's got full autonomy to sort of eradicate Cobra as a threat. But this is, of course, before something like the jugglers rear their ugly heads. Because once the jugglers do, there's agendas and they want to sort of keep Cobra going. Well, that was always the the, the more politicized angle of the G.I. Joe comic book. The yeah. fact that Cobra, by virtue of their type of operation, were actually untouchable politically by becoming an, a nation-state almost. Mm. It became political controversy to then attack them. But yes, I'd say you're spot on, Paul, except I don't think the DX-19 is at all an air-to-air combatant. I don't think it's designed to dogfight. It just something about its design says it's a highly unstable aircraft with limited maneuvering characteristics. It's designed to be unseen, unheard, small, small radar cross section. Its intakes are in this sort of a cavity inside the body of the craft. It's designed to be completely unseen until mm. it's too late. It's kind of G.I. Joe's trump card to one up the Night Raven. Mm. Especially after we imagine that G.I. Joe managed to get their hands on a Raven to create their own. G.I. Joe is set in the world where Destro designed the Night Raven. As far as I know. Yeah, but I think G.I. Joe got their hands on this, the, the Night Raven. Much earlier, yeah. They had know, the Sky Raven. They had the Sky Raven. The, the Phantom X-19 came into service in 88, and the Sky Raven was used by the Sky Patrol in 1990. Wow. So they only managed to get their hands on and reverse engineer a Night Raven much later. Or at least, well, two years later. Two years after the debut of the Phantom X-19. Yeah, if you're relying on... The waves of the toys being the years of the Joe 
I do. I have to. This you is how to. I construct my reality. Yeah, but then how, that, that kind of conflicts then with the comic book storyline. No, it doesn't. Even the comic book storyline mirrors the toy releases because Harmer had to write for, yeah. yeah, he had to write for whatever was the new release. Okay, what are we going to say in conclusions? In conclusion, I'd like to open it up to the listeners, all 25 of you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we're growing. We're growing in leaps and bounds. <laughs> Please keep listening. But the bottom line is, guys, we want to know from you who's delivered the more compelling arguments. Tell us which of these three vessels, or perhaps one that we haven't mentioned, would come out on top. And... It doesn't necessarily have to be a facts and figures kind of conclusion. Whatever jet dominated your playtime, or still does, uh, we'd like to know. Yeah, I, I definitely would like to know who disagrees with me. Yeah, I'd like to know. You also, could with, like, withhold your addresses <laughs> from, from Rob. From Rob, yeah. Yeah, because you're going to have to. He's crafty. <laughs> but um, yeah, like hit up our Facebook group. Uh, it'd be very cool to hear your comments on there. Have them out for all the world to see. I'm, I think I stand by you guys. I'd love to take some photos of my Night Raven, um, put them up on the Facebook, so you know some of our listeners can actually see them. Because we do believe that some of you may not have actually really seen the Night Raven, or maybe you don't appreciate the scale of you know, of the Night Raven itself, and maybe then you'll understand why it's better than the Sky Striker and the, the Hurricane. <laughs> Don't listen to him, listeners. The Sky Striker with Ace, perfection. I'm not even going to argue because I know the Hurricane wins. I mean, <laughs> he is the most awesome, unique-looking pilot. It's small. It's got tons of little missiles you can throw. And the drone has a little mechanism that shoots the missiles. I mean, usually those sorts of things are terrible when it comes with the figure. But when it comes on the aircraft, it's beautiful. It saves you having to throw the damn thing. Exactly. Yeah. And the missile... A couple tunnel syndrome. You don't want that shit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, listeners. I think that's a wrap for us. Hope you enjoyed the show. Good night. Night, guys. Yeah, sleep well. <laughs> I mean, goodbye. <laughs> Cheers. Hold <laughs> on. Okay. Be cool. Yo, Joe. Go and hit up Action Figure Therapy. Uh, to put that in perspective, it's one in the morning here, so... Good night is pretty apt. Anyway, ciao. Yeah. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Tot ziens. Abba Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>